Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Looking at proposals from the Energy Secretary, Rick Perry, has it... Uh tries to reform the power markets. Is it nuts? Well, so says our next guest, Liam Denning. He is our energy, mining, and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Liam, a pleasure. Thank you for being here at the uh, Monaco Government Tourism's Sustainability Focus, uh, the luncheon here at Bloomberg World Headquarters. Uh, Is this really a plan of reform, or is it a plan of relief? I mean, I I think you have to put quote marks around the words reform and um, maybe even plan here. (laughs) Um, Wow, that was was something else. Love it, Liam. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Then back up and you got to tell us what is it? What are are the the proposals? So ostensibly, uh, this is all about uh, keeping the the power market uh, quote unquote resilient. And the general thrust of it is we had the polar vortex a few years ago. Um, Some gas power plants during that uh, shut down because they couldn't get enough gas uh, because it was being diverted to heat people's homes. And um, Rick Perry has seized upon this to uh, try and institute a subsidy for coal-fired power plants, which have been struggling, as you may or may not know. And um, it's being done under this pretense that they basically need to keep a bunch of coal lying around so that if we get another... Uh, polar vortex they've got coal on hand to generate power now this is something of a solution in search of a problem because uh, all sorts of studies and all sorts of companies including the operator of the regional grid that we're talking about which covers about 70 million people uh, have said that this really isn't a problem Um, and in fact if you look at what happened in the polar vortex a lot of coal-fired power plants shut down as well because it was too cold for them to to run their systems so it's really just a coal subsidy so Liam um, I love just trying to imagine where you have air quotes as you speak now and I'm gonna be doing that for the rest of the segment actually every word yeah (laughs) pretty much you're putting every word into air quotes Um, the the plan calls for for a subsidy for unregulated power plants holding 90 days worth of fuel on site this talks specifically to uh, the fossil fuel companies right who else keeps that kind of uh, sort of physical resources on hand I'm just wondering you know you you raised an issue this isn't a conservative principle in fact this is somewhat radical so if this uh, if this particular administration adheres to or, or says that they adhere to conservative ideals this kind of flies in the face of that right i mean it, it's it's not conservative in in any form in fact i mean it's not conservative on on a couple of fronts so one is um you're rolling back 20 or 30 years of of power market deregulation which the last i heard conservatives generally favor that sort of thing you know markets prices supply and demand that sort of thing so you'd be rolling that back it's also it's it's just sort of fundamentally intellectually dishonest on a couple of levels i mean we're talking about uh pricing what economists would call an externality so so this resilience thing apparently isn't captured in power prices therefore we need a subsidy and and the energy market is full of all sorts of subsidies but generally you expect conservatives trying to take subsidies 
out and regulations out. So wait, can you just give us what the defense is of this? I mean, I, I, before, but just like, it, what is the argument for uh, why Rick Perry is calling for this? You know, aside from we want to finance coal companies, is it purely the, the sort of polar vortex or is there something else about uh, that, that, that they're saying here? No, I mean, it really does rely on this argument that uh, power prices as they are currently set do not reward um, certain types of power plant for just being there in case we need them. And, you know, the market operator has said there is there is a problem with the way power is being priced and we are perhaps setting ourselves up for a problem. However, the market operator has also instituted other market-based ways of doing this and has talked about some other things. What they certainly haven't done is said, let's just abandon power pricing altogether and shove a bunch of money towards these coal-fired power plants so they can buy more coal so it can sit around in a big pile. Uh, I've, I've been taking a look at the, the value of coal stocks. Console Energy uh, is just one. Uh, stock has not sort of grabbed any fabulous attention. I mean, stock's down more than 12% so far this year. So mm-hmm. it doesn't look like the coal stocks have gotten a pop from uh, from any of these uh, efforts, right? I mean, no, you don't right. see this. And, okay. And it, yeah. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the, the, the political vortex, right? From the polar vortex to the political uh, vortex. I was under the impression that the grid needs upgrading and that natural gas is the wave of the future because it's inexpensive and we have a lot of it. Why mm-hmm. doesn't the money go to those things? The money is going to those things. That's, so that's precisely why Perry wants a, a subsidy for coal because so everyone should get a pony. Sucked, sucked away. Well, no, gas, gas is getting money because it's competing because it's very cheap. I mean, that's, that's why we're seeing gas-fired power plants get built and coal-fired power plants being retired. The fact is... Who at this point is going to invest in a new coal-fired plant that won't even begin operation operations for three or four years, by which time the political landscape could be looking different? In general, no one is going to invest that money because these plants run for 30 or 40 years, and everyone expects that over time we're going to see things like carbon pricing or at least tighter regulations on coal. I mean, the market is only really going one way. Liam Denning. Thank you so much for joining us. Liam Denning is energy mining and commodities columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly talking about, quote, coal. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Well, we're starting to get a sense of how much money U.S. Congress is putting aside to recover from the very active hurricane season. We're talking about Hurricanes Harvey and Maria and others that have battered uh, the South uh, as well as the Caribbean islands. Here to look at it from the private side is Jonathan Adams, Senior Insurance Industry Analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. We're starting to get some earnings reports from reinsurance companies. XL Group, for example, reports reported last night, Axis Capital reports tonight, Validus Holding reports tomorrow, and there are others that come next week. Are we getting any greater insight into just how expansive the uh, damages are going to be for reinsurance companies and what the costs will be? Well, the costs are, so far, largely in line with what had been expected by those companies. So I don't think we're going to see major surprises in terms of the individual company costs. They do a pretty good job of um, estimating it, what that is. So for example, for Excel, the net cost was uh, $1.5 billion, which is 
quite significant and probably about one and a half percent of the total industry loss. So I think on that score, um, the the industry is, has done pretty well in, in estimating what those losses will be for them. The big question is what to do next. Well, and Jonathan, that, maybe go, go into that because y- maybe you could describe what happens in a typical cycle after a catastrophe or a hurricane and what might happen this time that's different. Absolutely. You look at the price increases that were put through after Hurricane Katrina, which is a normal normal response because you need to recover those losses, and they were upwards of 70% or more for U.S. catastrophe reinsurance. Uh, This cycle, it's unlikely to be anywhere near that, and even though uh, management teams are talking about double-digit increases, those are going to be pretty low double-digit increases, and the um, problem here is that we have an ample supply of capital that is willing to take this risk. And because of that, uh, you simply can't pass on uh, the kind of steep uh, price increases that uh, were passed on a decade ago with Hurricane Katrina, uh, because there'll be someone else willing to take that risk for less money. This is... this is this is super important. I mean, th- this is a, a huge issue because if uh, reinsurance companies and others are not able to demand a high enough risk premium uh, from investors from uh, from clients who are taking out these policies, then they're that much more exposed. I mean, does this make the reinsurance companies more fragile going forward because they've got that much lower of a buffer uh, if there are uh, a bigger uh, than expected number of catastrophes? It could. I don't think we're at a point so far where there's a um, heightened risk of eating into their capital base. But I do think that there's clearly high risk of um, those individual companies in that industry having much lower returns. And it could ultimately get to the point that you've indicated where you begin to have a more fragile industry and a more fragile capital base. At the moment, uh, we do have investors from the capital markets willing to buy catastrophe bonds, and that's been a major source of competition uh, for the traditional reinsurance companies. And that's really what has been um, driving the influx of capital and what I think will be um, a, a, a depression on price increases going into 2018. As we know, with how the capital markets uh, act, it certainly could be the case that they push that too far. And in fact, you do have a more fragile industry uh, sometime in the future. Hey, hey, Jonathan, wondering if indeed this new capital continues to flow into the insurance industry, you're going to find that a lot of people who have never been in the insurance industry are going to be captivated by whatever yield is sort of dangled in front of them, right? is there a question or is there something you would suggest to them, newbies in the industry, that they need to ask the sponsors or any of the people putting these deals together a question that they should ask before they jump in in an industry they don't know a lot about? Absolutely. And that question is, um, how do you understand volatility? Because it's really, um, if, for, for many uh, bond investors that, that are looking at credit, they, they think they may have a loss, but there's always some kind of uh, recovery. With catastrophe bonds, uh, if you have a full loss, you can go from uh, it, an expectation of receiving all your capital back to getting half of it back or none of it back. And it's really that volatility that should 
demand a higher return and isn't always getting it because we don't see that volatility year to year. You only see it over a decade or more. So that's the key question. Jonathan, just real quick, who are these other investors who are pouring into uh, this industry? Well, um, it, it's a broad smattering of um, individuals that, that want somewhat higher returns and some diversification. So it could be anywhere from uh, individual hedge funds that, that understand the insurance market to pension funds that uh, have less of an understanding but certainly want to diversify their um, their investments um, or other traditional uh, fixed income investors. But those two, um, you know, stand out as as uh, individuals that have been uh, buying this type of asset. Thanks very much for spending time with us. Jonathan Adams is our senior insurance industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. The bond market, the government bond market, a sell-off at the long end, a little bit of buying at the short end. Something that seems to have been going on for quite a while, turning that teeter-totter perhaps into a flat board. Here to tell us more, Scott Dorf. He is a Bloomberg Profit and Managing Director at Amherst Pierpont Securities. Scott, thanks very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Your latest column is called Buy the Dip is a Losing Strategy in the Bond Market. Why? Well, we've had a situation where the fundamentals for the bond market have been deteriorating pretty steadily, but we didn't really see that in the prices until starting about a month ago. And 10-year yields actually hit the 201 level in early September. And I think that was uh, a cathartic stop out for a lot of a lot of traders, and particularly speculative investors who, you know, had been betting on higher rates through the summer. Those positions got taken out. And yeah. over, over the last month, we've moved up, you know, 45 basis points in yields uh, with a pretty consistent and not really significantly changing economic and inflation picture in the U.S. Yeah, um, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Today, uh, there are a lot of people saying that we're reaching kind of a a sort of uh, moment of truth. That was what Jeff Gunlock said. A moment of truth for the U.S. Treasury market yields crossing that 2.4% threshold and just continuing on up. How high can they go at this point with no fundamental change in the backdrop. I mean, yes, the ECB may announce some kind of tapering uh, that's more hawkish than people are expecting tomorrow. Uh, Yes, potentially inflation uh, could pick up. uh, And yes, there could be a more hawkish Fed chair. All of that does not negate the trillions of dollars of cash sloshing around the financial system. Well, I think, you know, it's uh, probably a bit of a triple whammy in terms of a number of, you know, kind of in in the background events occurring. I mean, the, the largest one being you know, the taper and, you know, the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet, which the Fed has told us is going to be very much in the background and we're not going to notice. But I think, you know, they protest a little bit too much. And, you know, by certainly over 2018 and 2019, they're going to have, the Treasury's going to have to find $400 billion extra that if the taper wasn't occurring that uh, the Fed would have absorbed. That comes on top of a huge increase in the deficit already this year. We're 80, you know, we were $80 billion over for this fiscal year, and, and some of the estimates are that the deficit, the numbers are going to be 50 to 100% higher in terms of what the Treasury has to raise in net new money next year. And that comes at the same time that we have very solid 25 3% growth in the second half of the year. Uh, the one outlier has obviously been these core CPI inflation numbers, and I think that is what prevented people from, you know, betting too, 
too aggressively on you know on higher rates. Uh, but the Fed has made it clear they're going to look through that core CPI, and they see signs. You know, certainly with uh, an, an unemployment rate at four point two percent, and probably headed under four percent next year, they see signs that you know inflation is going to be more of a problem ongoing. Okay, so uh, since you think that buy the dip is not a strategy that's going to work with this Treasury sell-off, uh, where do you think the ten-year yield is heading by uh, at year end? Well, the first target for certainly for the people who look at charts is the year-to-date highs in the in the two and two sixty two sixty-five area. Uh, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a, you know a stopping point. This has not been a, a been a panicky sell-off by any sense. And while the, a lot of measures show that the leverage world is extremely short, the futures uh, you know in in the two to five year sector, I, it doesn't anecdotally it doesn't feel to me like the uh, a lot of the shorts are uh, you know are, are overdone here. So I think it'll be more, a little bit more of an order continue to be an orderly. It's been a low volume sell-off. You know, you have not seen signs of panic at all yet. Well, well, Scott, you know, just maybe just a little bit uh, more, because if you're saying, all right, yields are going to go higher despite what we read about inflation, despite what we hear about uh, any effort on the part of the U.S. Treasury to rein in spending, which clearly doesn't seem to be working out, uh, is there a, a possibility that there'll just be a lot of buyers who come in because people don't want to take any risk and they want to just match their future liabilities and they want to hold on to their job? Well, I, you know, with a yield curve this flat, um, you know, a lot of people view the level of real, of, of rates in the long end as something of a conundrum that has been supported by massive flows from overseas because their markets are at incredibly unattractive yield levels due to, you know, quantitative easing. And But we're going to be looking at the end of that program. They're obviously behind the U.S. in terms of, on the calendar in terms of removing that excess accommodation, but it's coming in tomorrow with the ECB. We should get, you know, you know, some clarity there. So you have global central banks in coordination raising rates worldwide, um, a massively expanding deficit, very solid growth, an incredibly tight labor market. Um, I think that combination will keep the pressure on the back end of the, of the Treasury market. Yeah, I can imagine. So uh, going forward, a uh, quick question about John Taylor. Yesterday, President Trump asked uh, the Senate for a show of hands for who they would support as the next uh, Fed chair nominee. John Taylor was their selection. What would that mean for, for bond markets? Well, I, you know, I think no matter who we get in there, assuming that we don't get a renomination of Janet Yellen, I think you'll have a, a, a more hawkish Fed next year. And, you know, the markets are aware of that, but I think a lot of people are very unwilling to bet on it, given the, you know, the randomness of the selection process um, in Washington, D.C. You think that so, you think a show of hands is random? Is that so? <laughs> um, I, I think that a show of hands won't necessarily affect the decider on the issue. Well, thank you, uh, Scott Dorf. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, for your insightful columns. As always, Scott Dorf is a Bloomberg Profit and Managing Director at Amherst Pierpont Securities, uh, also a longtime trader in the bond market with a lot of insight into uh, what we should be expecting. We turn now to the world of Apple and smartphones. Alex Webb, technology reporter for Bloomberg, joins us now from San Francisco. And uh, Alex, I wonder if you could just tell us about the supply chain that it currently exists and how it has changed in order to, uh, to bring these new iPhones to market. 
So whenever Apple brings a new phone to market and they have a, a headline new technology, often that technology, the core of it is not really designed by Apple. They take components from all over the place, piece them together, and, and then they say, look at this thing that we've come up with. Well, the, the technology in the new iPhone X is written as an X, but the iPhone X is, um, is actually very similar to what was in the original Microsoft Connect. You know, that, that, that sensor which went on top of an Xbox and could detect movement. What they did was they took that right the way down and made tiny, tiny versions of it just a few millimeters by centimeters across rather than the size of, say, a small book. And that's been a bit of a challenge for the, for the suppliers to really meet those standards in time for the production. Alex, you know, what struck me with uh, the piece that you wrote today, uh, which was fascinating, is this tension between Apple wanting to push the envelope and come up with uh, newer and more groundbreaking technologies and the supplier's inability to really uh, mass produce those at the same level. And I'm just wondering, I mean, is this going to be a pretty big pitfall for Apple as it tries to meet very very high expectations from the market about its ability to evolve and uh, continue to sell its iPhone. So, as we've seen, the stock hasn't taken a massive um, pounding on, on this kind of drip-drip of news over recent months um, about the supply chain problems. But um, the, because the expectation is that once those supply chain problems are ironed out, it will feed into a product cycle of maybe two years. But then comes the question, what comes after those two years? How much more can they really innovate and deliver um, the sort of new technologies which will drive customers to keep buying new phones? There's a, a widespread fear that the, the smartphone market is now saturated. This is one of the reasons why Tim Cook, CEO, starts talking a lot about augmented reality. And we've reported that Apple's working on smart glasses, for instance. And those sort of new products are going to be crucial in the it's sort of mid to long term. You know, Alex, I'm wondering if you could tell us about the individual pieces of the supply chain that have been most problematic for Apple. Is it the 3D sensor unit, the one that recognizes your face and unlocks the phone? Yes, absolutely. So there's one particular component in that. The way this technology works is um, one of the components flashes 30,000 laser dots onto the user's face and uses that to map it and work out who's, who is in front of it and whether to unlock the phone. Now, that component has a very, very small margin of error in the micron range. That's a fraction of the breadth of a hair. And so if it's placed slightly awry, the technology doesn't work. And that's created huge problems for the uh, the assemblers, the, com- the companies who take all these disparate components, piece them together, then ship them to Foxconn to, uh, to, to build into the phone itself. And these are companies like LG Inatech, a Korean company, and Sharp, of course, the Japanese company. In fact, Timing with our story today, just coincidental, LG Inatech admitted on their call that they've had problems making these modules and that it will affect supply of the iPhone X come November the 3rd when it hits stores. There will be supply constraints. Alex, can you just give us some perspective about how unusual this is for Apple to have supply chain challenges? Because, you know, it hasn't, uh, it's not unheard of for Apple, but are the uh, iPhone X or the, the challenges here much greater than usual? Yes, basically they are. Uh, the, it's always the case that Apple has a very effective supply chain management system. They do not want to have too much supply. They do not want to have millions of iPhones sitting in warehouses around the world getting dusty. So they often constrain supply a little bit. means they can um, create some more appetite amongst the, the consumers. And also they can tell investors that, hey, we've sold out of iPhones on first weekend or whatever it might be. So the, but in this case, it seems not to be something of Apple's own creation. They, are, they cannot meet 
meet the demand that they had hoped to be able to meet. And, and that is the sense going into it. Nonetheless, there will be iPhones available next week. It's just that analysts locally in Asia seem to expect it'll be between 25 and 30 million in, in the whole quarter, rather than perhaps the, the 50, 60 million, which, which might typically be expected. Uh, Alex, uh, are you going to get in line for your new iPhone? <laughs> Personally, I'm not. No, I mean, I, I, maybe you can write a letter to my editors, tell them to pay me a little bit more. But um, <laughs> the, uh, no, the, uh, the, I honestly, I'm not that. I, I think Touch ID works just fine. For I was going to say that, so, that, that yeah. it's a different kind of 3D sensor, uh, yeah. the one that gets you the raise. Alex, I, that, I, I don't have it. that on my phone. I, honestly, Alex, I love it. The public appeal for a raise. <laughs> we're, we're all there with you. Alex Webb, thank you so much for joining us. Alex Webb is our technology reporter uh, for Bloomberg News coming to, uh, to, coming to us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. And uh, this is a little bit different than usual. And it is fascinating. And it raises the question to me of whether eventually it'll create more demand for the iPhone 8, which is had trouble selling because people realized they're not going to get their iPhone 10 so quickly. Right now, though, let's I see go- you online. <laughs> I see you online for this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.